ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is George Steele. I'm the director of the Miller Theatre here at Columbia. Uh, I've been the director since November, so I'm delighted uh, to have completed something on the order of three months of wonderful programming that I inherited from my predecessor. Uh, and this evening and the three subsequent evenings uh, are just such programs. Um, we're beginning with this new series called The New Intolerance, uh, and it's quite an extraordinary series of four programs uh, built by, uh, in conjunction with the writing program here at the School of the Arts at Columbia and the Penn American Center. Uh, they promise to be four uh, very interesting evenings. Uh, tonight, uh, the topic, as you know, is politics. Uh, Michael Scammell, who is our moderator, uh, personifies the dual uh, partnering for this series of programs. He is not only a member of the writing faculty here at the Columbia School of the Arts, but also president of the Penn American Center. Uh, the panel this evening, uh, to whom we're deeply grateful, Hilton Kramer, Akati Martin, Farid Zakaria, and Richard Blow uh, are uh, going to be uh, quite intriguing, I know. Uh, many of you may know that uh, George Stephanopoulos had also planned uh, to join us this evening, uh, but was unable to, owing to uh, the late unpleasantness uh, and is out of town. Uh, we're sorry he can't be here, but uh, uh, we don't lament his absence too much. I've been privy to some initial discussions backstage and it promised to be a riveting uh, evening, rest assured. Um, please stop by the box office on your way out and uh, pick up tickets to the subsequent programs which have equal resonance in these trying times. Uh, namely, a week from tonight, uh, the topic is intolerance in sex, uh, a week hence, uh, intolerance in race, and finally, intolerance in the arts. Uh, and all four uh, promise to be uh, very fine weeks. And so without further ado, I'd like to bring out uh, this evening's panelists, uh, including Mr. Michael Scammell, uh, the moderator. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Scammell, and you have a little sheet with our biographies on, so um, I won't say very much, and I'll say nothing about myself. I'd like to introduce our speakers tonight. At the far end is Fareed Zakaria, who's the managing editor of Foreign Affairs, a contributing editor of Newsweek, and uh, writes frequently for most of the leading publications in uh, our country. Uh, next to him is William Blow, who is the Richard. I've been calling you William for the last, sorry about that. <laughs> I should read my script. Richard Blow is a senior editor at George Magazine and uh, covers uh, in particular of Washington and uh, has written for numerous other magazines and newspapers including Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, the Washington Monthly, New York Times, and so on. Next to him is Kati Martin, who was born in Hungary, uh, has been writing and commenting and reporting for two decades, both in the United States and Europe and the Far East. She's the host of America and the World, a weekly half-hour broadcast on international affairs on NPR. Immediately to my left is Mr. Hilton Kramer, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion, a monthly review of the arts, which he founded with Samuel Littman. 
He's also the art critic for the weekly New York Observer and uh, has been uh, writing for various magazines on the press longer than most of us on this platform have been alive, I suspect. <laughs> Don't want to overdo it, uh, Phil, just to emphasize your experience. <laughs> well, the uh, series that we're inaugurating is on the general subject of intolerance. Um, it's been sponsored, as you've already heard, by the Penn American Center and the School of the Arts and the Writing Division at Columbia. And uh, I think uh, when the series was first conceived, it was conceived with the idea that intolerance uh, was a, a subject that needed addressing at the present time. And what this panel is going to discuss, I hope, uh, I'm not um, very confident in the, uh, that I can control them in any way, uh, is the question of whether intolerance is on the rise or decreasing. Uh, we are deputed to look into intolerance, particularly as it affects politics and the political scene. As you know, there will be future panels on intolerance and race, sex, art, which means we have sworn not to say anything at all about <laughs> sex, art, and uh, race tonight. Um, it seems to me that uh, much with, with what our discussion will probably divide into two completely unequal parts. Uh, one part will concern the situation uh, in the world generally. Uh, we should never forget uh, that we are part of a much larger world and also subject to forces uh, which are active in that world and affecting us. I think we'll look at how this affects American foreign policy. But then we will also turn to the situation in this country, politics, the question of whether intolerance is playing a larger or a lesser role than in the past. And uh, I suspect that sooner or later we will end up discussing subject number one, which I will not name for the moment. Um, I'd like to, before uh, going much further though, quote two uh, recent articles which it seems to me sum up the two, um, what shall I say, the two ends of the spectrum, the two possible points of view. I'm sure most of you are familiar with these. Uh, one was written by Gary Wills in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, and you may remember that his theme was, in fact his title is, Whatever Happened to Politics. And he says, it's hard to find anywhere on the current scene a politics of the sort once recognized as serious. There are no great debates on great issues. Party loyalty is down. Voter apathy is up. Both the president and Congress seem like sailors in a dead calm. They work the rudder back and forth, but nothing happens. And the other one is from an article by Joe Klein, not in the latest New Yorker, but about a week ago, in which he says, the American political process has gone a little haywire in the 90s. A prosecutorial fever obtains. Media firestorms are frequent and unreliable in their import. Public life has come to be dominated by special prosecutors, fiercely competitive investigative reporters, and another world of tipsters, advisors, investigators, and so on. It does seem possible that more harm has been done to American democracy by the witch hunt mentality at loose in Washington 
than by any crimes or misdemeanors of the president in this case. Well, uh, here we have two views. One is that there is no politics anymore. Everything is a dead calm and the rudder is shaking back and forth. The other that we live in an era of witch hunts uh, which are upsetting the political process by their sheer fervor and vigor. Well, uh, I'm going to backtrack from that, keeping those things in mind. Uh, they could also, it seems to me, be applied to a certain sense uh, to the larger world, that is to say, since the end of the Cold War, are we living in a situation in which uh, world politics have become more stable, less contentious? Is there more of a consensus spreading around the world? Is the globalization that uh, we hear so much about these days having a calming effect? Or, on the contrary, are we in a world in which intolerance is increasing? Um, I think it was Samuel Huntington who, who predicted that there would be increasing conflicts in the near future uh, rather than lessening ones. So uh, I'm going to start there, and I'm going to start at the farthest point for me and ask Farid Zakaria, who's a specialist in foreign politics, perhaps to take a, give us a quick rundown on the larger situation. Farid. Well, I think in a way, um, Michael, the, the, the two comments are not that um, uh, contradictory because in a, in a way what you do have is a lack of the kind of high tensions of politics, the, the uh, tensions about how to organize a society uh, politically and economically. On that there is a kind of blurry consensus. And perhaps for that reason, the kind of passions and, and political fervor often come out in, in uh, rather bizarre ways, um, to, to, put it, uh, to put it gently. Um, I, I think that you do see around the world a, a, a kind of consensus, one that troubles many people, but it exists nonetheless. That you know, the, the Fukuyama's uh, much ridiculed uh, phrase, the end of history, um, seems to be largely true in the sense that there is no great competitor to Western liberal democratic capitalism around the world. The, the events in East Asia are a very uh, uh, harsh reminder of that. Regimes of all different kinds, um, from left-wing regimes to autocratic regimes, all had to do exactly the same thing at the end of the day. Um, because there isn't another game in town. So I, I think that where you see real intolerance is in kind of in, in horrific pockets like Bosnia, yes. Azerbaijan, Armenia, you know, these these which are often frightened reactions to modernity and things like that. But I don't think they really characterize the general trend, which I would say in many ways is kind of boringly banal. <laughs> I hope we're not gonna <laughs> not going to follow suit. <laughs> Kathy, would you, uh, would, I mean, would you like to comment on that? Uh, yes, I would. Um, I agree with Farid. I, uh, by the way, our instructions were never to agree on anything up here, so this will be, this will be my last bit of agreement with any of you. I, but I agree that, that, the, that the two uh, columns cited by Michael um, are not that far apart. It seems to me that the difference between them is that one was written before the Vesuvian eruption of, of, is it only nine days ago? It seems like nine months. And, and the other was written after. That is to say that there was this kind of um, 
death, almost deadly for the media, particularly deadly boredom abroad in the land, and, uh, and a news drought of, uh, of titanic proportions um, since Princess Di's uh, tragic death last September, which I think uh, has resulted in, in some of the um, most reckless and irresponsible uh, media coverage of, uh, of any story uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. And I think that that leads to the second column, the Joe Klein column, uh, in which he bemoans the uh, prosecutorial or persecutorial uh, tactics of the independent counsel. Uh, one seems to me to be uh, a direct result of the other. And, and there are, I, I don't want to uh, hog the mic here, but, uh, but I, I, I believe that the two have converged. The media drought, um, actually three, I'll correct that, three, three forces seem to have converged here. The end of the Cold War, 1989, which meant that uh, we no longer had this, this sort of overarching peril facing our country. Um, which, which imposed a kind of a strange good behavior um, on, on, on many of us because, because we did have this sense of a common enemy. That is gone now. That has resulted in, in a kind of a trivialization of the political, uh, of, of, of the political debate. And, um, and, and uh, at the same time, we've had, we've had this, this amazing, uh, mushrooming of media outlets all dressed up with no place to go. And, and that, of course, has, has resulted in, in, uh, in thousands of media outlets of, of very little background or, or, or experience, but, 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 uh, but remarkable technology to pounce like so many hungry wolves on, on this story, which has been marked, I believe, by remarkable little real reporting. Uh, Kati, you say not much is going on and uh, it's unfortunate, it seems to me, that you mentioned Diana as the only other thing going on. Uh, well, looks, that was the last major it, it looks as if we're about to launch a major attack on Iraq. The Israeli-Palestinian peace process seems to be collapsing around it. Uh, no kind of uh, rapprochement has been reached with Iran. We don't know what the fallout of the economic crisis in Asia is going to be yet, and some of the most powerful economies and societies are there. Uh, there was recently a major civil war in, uh, in Africa, in the Congo. Uh, all the countries around the Congo are in some kind of turmoil. Um, Algeria, Bosnia, Chechnya, Afghanistan, nothing to report. I'm going to direct this to Hilton, by the yes, way. Well, uh, I do think that uh, in talking about this, you know, sort of benign international situation uh, that we're alleged to be experiencing at the moment, it's very important to make a distinction between uh, media coverage of foreign affairs, uh, which is decreasing by the most extraordinary, uh, at the most extraordinary velocity in American journalism in my lifetime, and what is actually happening in the world. I mean. Uh, uh, Michael's already given us uh, a quite a uh, depressing inventory, and he, and he left out Ireland and, uh, and a, you know a few other places. Not to mention the European Union, in which we're seeing the uh, c creation of a new 
undemocratic megastate, uh, which shows great intolerance for national differences, since we're talking about intolerance in politics, um, and which is, you know, issuing fiats from Brussels about, uh, uh, you know, school the hiring of school teachers in Britain and so on, uh, a government that's been elected by nobody. Process of presiding over uh, all of Western Europe. Uh, the, the, I think the downgrading of foreign reporting in the American press and in the American media generally uh, is proving to be something of a catastrophe for American political and cultural life. Americans now, I think, are more ignorant uh, about what occurs abroad than any time in my lifetime. Now, of course, it was true that uh, you know, during the Second World War and then the Cold War and so on, um, there, were, there, there, were, there seemed to be a more urgent reason why uh, Americans would be interested in foreign affairs and therefore made it easier for American newspapers and other media to uh, give foreign <coughs> coverage a, a, a major place um, in their reporting schedules. But, um, you know, college students even, uh, or particularly, you might say, really know less about what is going on in the world today than, say, the college students of my generation. Uh, I, I should have said earlier that there will be plenty of time for questions at the end of this session. <laughs> also, indignant rebuttals of anything said on the platform. Richard. Could I, yeah, I, I would like to jump in. I've been trying to hold back a little bit as I'm clearly the least knowledgeable person about foreign affairs on this panel focus on Washington and Monica Lewinsky and trivial things like this. Uh, uh, but, uh, please, please not yet. I, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical of this idea that the American people are more ignorant than they ever have been before and that it's a great tragedy that the great American public isn't following what's going on in Chechnya, elsewhere, overseas. I think the American public sort of learns about foreign affairs as it decides it needs to in times of crisis. And I honestly doubt whether the great majority of Americans are particularly more or less ignorant about foreign affairs than they ever have been throughout our history. Kathy wants to come back on oh, that. Oh, yes, indeed, yes. Um, I agree with everything you said except the major uh, point. <laughs> <laughs> beyond our borders if, if the news media does a responsible job of covering those areas and the news media does not. Therefore, I know there are all sorts of surveys showing that there's shrinking interest in, in what's going on beyond our borders. There's a very good reason for that because the, the, there are vast regions that are, that are simply not covered or if they're covered, let's say on, on, um, on the evening news, they're covered in such an incomprehensible 30-second uh, bite that, that even I, who am passionately interested, am not interested. There's, there is um, a real absence of responsible coverage of trends and, and, the, and, and, 
putting these stories in some sort of understandable perspective when the world is really shrinking but very fast and we're not ready for it. Be that as it may, I'd just be curious if you could point to a time in American history when mass media was filled with responsible, thorough, informative stories about it. Oh, in the 1930s, uh, when I was growing up, I mean, there were 10 daily newspapers in Boston that were filled with stories about what was going on in Nazi Germany, what was going on in Mussolini's Italy, what was going on in Ethiopia, what was uh, going on in China. Uh, Which goes to the, the radio, point that there was the radio some, news, some and the radio news was full of this. Well, and Time Magazine was well, you know, the great sort of uh, attempt to elevate the knowledge of the, the, the great national middle class. But, but I, I think that the, the point Rich is making is not entirely without merit. That is, it's not just the media. You can, you can sort of. <laughs> I'm really being damned by faint praise. No, you can, you can, we can sort of. This is a very, uh, you know, this is the last 10 days we've seen a great deal of this is sort of. You bash the media while solemnly intoning about the, the virtues of the American people, who are, of course, uh, uh, blameless in, in, in all respects. Um, <laughs> the media gives the people what they want. I mean, the reason the media is doing this is not some kind of conspiracy against foreign news. It's because foreign news doesn't sell. I, I write for Newsweek, and there is a mathematical correlation between the, the lowest tel uh, uh, 10 covers every year and the 10 foreign covers every year. Because it's not interestingly covered. Well, I mean, I think you could say that. We have a, a lively, competitive, vast media. Surely somebody would be doing it right. But, it, but, uh, but I think there is a broader problem, which is uh, you talk to people who advise presidents. 1968 uh, campaign, 1964, I've, I've talked to people in these ones. The foreign policy advisor was usually the central advisor to the president during the campaign. Met with him every day. The, the presidential candidate usually made <coughs> one to two foreign policy speeches a week. I talked to the person who advised Dole on his campaign, foreign, foreign policy advisor. He said he met with him twice during the entire campaign. Dole made one speech about foreign policy. Clinton made none. Um, now, you know, in a, in a way, how do you do it if politicians aren't paying that much attention to it? All of which, if, all of which does relate to the list of things you mentioned, Michael, or a classic example of history continuing small age, but history big age having ended. That is to say, people see these things, rightly or wrongly, as being small, unconnect, uh, unconnected events that don't relate to the kind of great world historical Hegelian debate about you know, what, 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 what is the way of the future. Now, they may be wrong, but I think that's why it's difficult to connect. And, and, and stories that I find, actually, that, that when American journalists try to relate these things by in this absurd, you know, sort of Oprahization of foreign news, where now, you know, having heard about the housewife in the Bronx who can't raise her child, you hear about the housewife in Sarajevo who can't raise her child. I don't think that's the answer. The answer is that there, you need to make a kind of intellectual connection about the direction uh, that, that events are going in. I think you need both. I think you need the. I think you do need the emotional connection. I think we can't emphasize often enough that that the, the housewife in Sarajevo basically has many of the same dreams as the housewife in the Bronx. I think you have to start with that uh, to, to reach people. And then once you, once you have made that, which is the easy connection, let's face it, since we're all human, then you go from that to the more complicated ones. And, and I, there, I think, I, I really believe this very firmly. I, I, I think we're, we're falling short. And it isn't just, you know, we don't want this to be a, a media bashing thing, it isn't just the, the, the media that's that's falling short. It's uh, it's 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 all of us who are in some
some sort of position to carry on um, a, 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 a dialogue. Well, sorry, I was going to say if I could just very briefly do a little media bashing and talk about that Joe Klein quote for a minute and also and reveal a little bit of my intolerance for him. Um, <laughs> uh, Joe Klein talking about witch hunts is, is both hypocritical and self-serving, I would say. Um, and you have to forgive me, I think it's just I've had a long day or something and so I'm feeling very contrarian. But and a couple things, Joe Klein is the guy who after all wrote a book that may be one of the more damning anti-Clinton documents uh, that survives his presidency when all is said and done, we may remember primary colors far longer than we remember Ken Starr. And secondly, I think Joe Klein was quite scarred by his own experience at the hands of an angry press corps feeling that it had been lied to. And maybe his sympathies now are with the president a bit more than they otherwise would be because of that. Well, since we will be coming back to this subject, I will shelve it for the moment. Um, uh, I'm in parenthesis, I would say, I'm not sure that damning the source changes the, the validity of the idea and that it may be uh, part of present media practice that they're too caught up with who says what rather than what's said. However, I'll leave that on the table for later. I wanted to ask Hilton, um, given what we've heard, that there is this seeming, um, uh, what shall I say, this sort of contraction in interest in foreign, or evident or seeming contraction, because we've still left open the question of the chicken and the egg, is the American public at large less interested because the media don't give a damn, or are the media really reflecting what the American <coughs> public thinks, and is that the role of the media? However, I also don't want to talk about the media. I want to talk about the issues. Do we feel, do you feel that the American public, if there is such a thing, or the American political establishment is more tolerant now of Saddam Hussein than it was of other foreign leaders some years ago, or even of Hussein a few years ago? Are we more tolerant of Iran? Are we more tolerant of the Israeli-Palestine situation? Or uh, is, is there, is to, I want to get back to this tolerance issue. Uh, how, how do we feel? Are we feeling just let everything go? Or do I detect a certain concern in Washington and in the political establishment with these places? Well, I'm not sure I would describe our conflicts with Saddam at the moment as uh, raising the issue of intolerance. I think it, it, it more accurate to say it raises the issue of our squeamishness. Um, and that, I think, has to do uh, in part uh, with the absence, the disappearance of <coughs> what used to be called, usually in a condescending way, uh, the foreign <coughs> policy elite. That is, we no longer have what could be described as a foreign policy elite. That is that group of men, as they generally were, uh, who enjoyed uh, uh, positions of authority in the public eye uh, to uh, speak uh, with some experience and wisdom about uh, urgent foreign policy issues. Um, uh, there, 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 there is no such body now, so that. Uh, if the media want, turns now uh, to expert opinion about what should we do about uh, Iraq, uh, 
than the, the, the recent sense compared to the past, no established body of opinion the media can turn to. And so they're left to do it on a purely anecdotal, reported on a purely anecdotal basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, now whether the disappearance of foreign policy leaders is a cause or, or an effect of what's happened, my, my own experience uh, in newspapers for a long time suggests to me that uh, the public uh, can be made as intensely interested in foreign reporting uh, as in anything else. Uh, if it's done properly. Uh, one reason uh, there's less incentive to do it properly now is that it's become uh, extremely expensive for uh, many publications to have foreign bureaus and, and correspondents in far-flung places. Uh, you have to remember that uh, until about 1971, the, no editor at the New York Times had ever had a budget. Uh, the New York Times had traditionally made so much money that there was no such thing as a budget. I mean, if, a, if a, an editor wanted to send, you know, uh, two correspondents and two photographers, you know, to the, uh, the grimmest part of Africa, uh, they they were sent, uh, and there was there were no no, no one was out, no one raised the question of what it was going to cost. Well, that sort of came to an end in the early seventies. And so we were given the living home and uh, weekend sections. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're talking about the media again. I want to keep us uh, but uh, but I, 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 I do think uh, there is now a vacuum. And, and I think it has a very adverse effect on our politics and on our understanding of the world. Uh, talked earlier about the whole issue of uh, Muslim fundamentalism and uh, speaking of uh, intolerance on the world scene. And uh, it's interesting to note that the last year there was uh, a conference in the Vatican that, as far as I know, was never reported in the American press, at which the, it, was, it was reported uh, that the birth rate of Muslims in Western Europe was already eight times the birth rate of Christians in Western Europe. And this caused immense alarm in the Vatican as well it should. And as I once discussed this with Bernard Lewis, and he said, and yes, you can be sure that those uh, Muslims in Europe are much more devout than the Christians in Europe are. Uh, what this portends for the future of Europe for the future of the European Union, for uh, the issue of tolerance in politics, and our relation, the United States' relation to Europe in the future. I mean, those are gigantic and threatening questions, which as far as I have been to make out, are just not discussed. Great. Well, I think that the, the point Helen is making about foreign policy elites is, is, is actually true in a sense as a wider phenomenon in society. That is, there does seem to have been uh, a, an erosion of the, the, the position and status and power of, of elites in, in it, all, all parts of society who were, you know, given, who had, of course, power uh, properly or, or improperly, so, but also a great deal of responsibility. 
and saw themselves as exercising some kind of public educational function. Don Hewitt tells the story that when he was hired at 60 Minutes, um, Paley said to him, uh, you know, they're talking about the, uh, the, the nature of the program, and he said, the only thing I want you to remember is make us proud. And Hewitt says, it is inconceivable that in today's world of television news, somebody would ever say something like that. An editor at Time Magazine was telling me about the time, in, the, in 1981, Time Magazine hired McKinsey, the consulting firm, to come in to tell them what people wanted to read in Time. And he said, this, this to him marked the end of, of Henry Luce's Time Magazine. Because for Luce, the reason he started the magazine was to tell people what to read. The last thing in the world he wanted to know was find out what they wanted. It was entirely a sort of producer-oriented rather than consumer-oriented vision. You see, I mean, if, if he wanted to produce a consumer magazine, he would have started a you know, ski magazine. I mean, lots of people ski, so you have a magazine about it. Um, and I think it, I, I wonder about uh, the, the kind of raucous, un, unregulated um, society which loses that kind, those kind of Tocquevillian mediating institutions. Uh, it's something, in a way, we haven't experimented with since the Jacksonian era. You know, I, I, I know that, that, that we're drifting back to the media, and I know you don't want us to do that, Michael, but it's really hard to speak about this, the, 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 the health of, of, of our society um, and not address, and, and about the subject of tolerance and intolerance, and not address <coughs> the, the media, which has, which has become really this, this sort of um, prevalent or primary institution with, with uh, the weakening of the presidency, which, which we're seeing. But, but I, I, um, two things. One is that, is that this lack of, uh, lack of interest in, in, uh, in, in, the rest, in the way the rest of the world does its business uh, that we've been uh, talking about, which I, which I maintain is a very dangerous thing for, for our health, um, is also reflected uh, in Congress. I, I uh, was recently told by a member of Congress with some pride that 70% of the uh, of newly of the freshman congressmen do not own a passport. Now, I thought that was certainly nothing that I would. It's always would worse assert, than you think. <laughs> I would assert with with, with pride. Uh, but uh, on, on the subject of the media, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to. Congress is more interesting. Congress is more interesting. Yeah. I, I, just, yeah. I just wanted to address this discussion of elites. I mean, I find it somewhat disturbing that everybody's sort of sitting around saying, where are the elites? They, we miss them, we need them, we need to teach the great unwashed. Um, now, I think hopefully those Republican members of Congress will get some passports and go see the world a little bit. They're not only but, Republicans. Well, <laughs> Speaking of intolerance. Now who's bias and show. Actually, Condi, they are mostly Republican. They mostly came in in 1994 when they weren't there were not many Democrats elected. But, but in fact, uh, there's a different way to look at this, which is to say that maybe these people came from relatively humble, modest backgrounds and didn't have the chance to spend their summers in Europe or elsewhere. And that's regrettable, and well, it should did? be remedied. Yeah, who but did? And, and it doesn't cost very much money to get a passport, but it does demonstrate a, a sort of an interest in the world. No, absolutely. But I think this means, you know, the great, I, I would suspect that 70% of Americans have not gone to Europe. And, uh, you know, we're talking about tolerance, and, and I think we should be perhaps uh, we should be. tolerant of, of people who have not had this experience and encourage them to get it. Richard, point really, if I sorry, this, whether or not there is a sensibility which is trying to, um, to, to um, 
to elevate public discourse in every sense possible. It, 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 I, I mean, it sounds very aristocratic. I don't mean that you know, these people often from, from you know, you, again, one uses the, the word that, that is most hated in, American, uh, in America today, the elites. These elites were often not, you know, contrary to the sort of myth of uh, patrician wasps, uh, etc. A lot of them were, were, came from very humble backgrounds. But there was a kind of earnestness of purpose, which is very passe nowadays. There was a kind of desire to, to, to try, you know, it was, a, it was the world that produced the Reader's Digest and the Book of the Month Club and CBS Evening News. It's very different from the world, uh, you know, the, the very ironic, um, uh, sort of um, um, uh, hip, cool, trendy, uh, and somewhat nihilistic um, media world we live in today. And it's not just the media. I think this is true of lawyers, this is true that sort of sense of, of, of public function uh, to your profession um, has been lost somewhat. And I think that it's not uh, hearkening back to, you know, to the days of, uh, you know, of, of uh, Newport races and, 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 and tennis and flannels to suggest that. Well, yes, sorry. I was actually going to uh, direct this first to Richard, but then to some of the other. I mean, what I hear you saying, uh, Fareed, among other things, and I hear others giving their assent, is that somehow this political elite is disappearing or, or has disappeared. And by the way, this is one of the themes of George Will's article too, I think. And the sense that what's replacing it is a bigger voice for, if I can use such an abstraction, the people. I mean, there's a populist trend at work here. Now, I would have thought that it's entirely in the American tradition to go in this direction. I mean, that the direction has always been away from authority, away, first of all, from kings and royal authority and then from aristocratic uh, authority, uh, sort of in always a, what is called a democratic direction. So uh, are, we, are people not saying, and, and is perhaps not some of the feeling that there's greater intolerance out there, is it is not some kind of instinctive distrust on the remaining part of the elite of the people, that, that we don't or they don't trust them to come to the right decisions or in this case, since we've been talking about foreign policy, to make good judgments about whether to do, whether to invade Iraq or to help um, uh, the Congo or something. Richard, is that a reasonable question to direct to you, uh, since you seem uh, to have greater faith? <laughs> that the remaining elites have some fear of, uh, of people. Yeah, I suppose that's right. And I, I you know, I, I don't mean to be completely in disagreement on this, I occasionally see you know the numbers of people who say they don't know who Al Gore is, or but they do know you know they do know every character on Seinfeld, and that you know it's hard to, to hear that sort of thing without feeling some pangs of concern. Um, but I, I guess I, I do feel that there are elites, just as there always have been. Um, Fareed, you work for a magazine that is clearly directed at elites, and it's. As far as I know, it's doing very well. This is not Newsweek, but Foreign Affairs. That's right, and, 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 and your magazine is edited by someone who would reasonably be called a member of a <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and he's fine. <laughs> uh, although, you know, we, uh, George is also a magazine that takes a somewhat different attitude than we've heard expressed here, which is that, um, although a little bit, similar to your ideas about foreign affairs, which is that people are interested in, in the stuff if you present it in the, in the same sorts of formats that, that people live with in their everyday lives. 
I think this is, a, this is an important discussion, so I hope that we're not belaboring it, but the only thing I would say to attend this is, as you said, every society has elites. You can pretend you don't have them, but in point of fact, every society has them. And what I find disturbing is this loss of any sense of a public role. If you look at the cyber rich, for example, um, you know, sort of in, in, in enormously wealthy, the Times had a, a very interesting article about these people who essentially use their wealth far from using it in some way to engage publicly, to isolate themselves from the body politic. Uh, you know, to, to live in outer seclusion, to, to go around on private planes, you know, to, to in effect not partake in the public sphere at all. And it seems to me that's the worst kind of elite. That is an elite that exists, you know, by very, the nature of every society having some stratifications, but in no way participating publicly. Could I, could I bring us a little, um, could I bring us now uh, a little closer even than before to home? since intolerance is our theme, um, do we see, uh, how do we relate the, um, the explosions in Oklahoma, in Atlanta, and most recently in Birmingham, Alabama, to our theme? Kathy, would you like to comment on this? Uh, is this evidence of some kind of trend, or uh, are these accidental events? Do they show us anything, or can we not? decode them in terms of our theme? Well, fortunately, they, they, they are uh, pretty uh, singular and isolated uh, events. I mean, horrific. Uh, but then this week, of course, we had the first lethal uh, bombing of, a, of an abortion clinic. And, and uh, you know, these are chilling things, but, but, uh, but historically, this country has, has, has always had its extremist elements. I, I, I don't suppose there is a society that's that's free from that. I I don't ascribe to any sort of uh, conspiracy theory regarding uh, their their uh, sort of global network or anything like that. Uh, Timothy McVeigh was uh, was um, I think um, uh, an, 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 an dangerous but an isolated uh, loner of the sort that uh, that we've always had, and, and they can do uh, terrific. Harm, but uh, but I, I don't I don't see that this is a a, a growing uh, trend by any means. I think that uh, there are there are things that I find um, vastly more dangerous and and of, of, of greater concern, which uh, which really grow out of what we've been talking about um, this this sort of atomization of our society, where where more and more people really are isolated uh, from, from any sort of sense of um, uh, connection to, uh, to society at large. And, and obviously, uh, uh, computers and the internet and, and, and so on have contributed to that. And, and I, what I see happening uh, to sort of fill the vacuum of the, of the vanishing elite is, is a celebrity culture. And, and Richard, you alluded to that, uh, that we do know more about Seinfeld. Um, than, than we know about um, um, Madeleine Albright or, or, or um, Vice President Gore or some other people who we ought to um, really be keeping tabs on. Um, there are some mercies. But the celebrity culture, I think what we're seeing now in, in Washington, and it's impossible not to touch on that momentarily at least, 
Um, is, I is talk about assassinations, you talk about celebrities, Katia. Well, I, I, I want to get a help. Yeah, I'm sorry, Michael, but I, I see, uh, frankly, I see, I see that sort of trivialization of our society as, as vastly more dangerous mm -hmm. um, than, than some lone loon operating in the uh, Michigan woods, and I hope that the FBI is, is keeping tabs on them. But, this, but the, the, what, what I mean that by what's going on in, in Washington as an outgrowth of the celebrity culture is is that we have now got a, a public that believes that it, it has a right to know the most salacious details of those celebrities. And, and, and Bill and Hillary Clinton are at the sort of top of the, the, the celebrity uh, pecking order. And, and it's led to, I think, a really embarrassing and rather distasteful uh, time in, in um, in Washington and in, in, in the country at large. I, I've been traveling in the last few days and there is a real unease about uh, that perhaps we have gone too far in this, in this sense of entitlement about um, you know, our right to know uh, what goes on, not only behind the doors but under the sheets. Gandhi, I'm still going to try and keep that subject at bay for a bit longer. Hilton has, uh, has seen more than many of us Hilton, we, I mean, going back a little bit further, we have the assassinations of Kennedy's. I'm sorry, that's, I'm ageist, that's what it is. I say it with respect, because I believe in elites myself. But what I want to say is, does this pattern of bombings suggest to you an, an increasing tolerance in our society? Well, I don't believe that we are experiencing increasing uh, levels of intolerance. And I think uh, you'd have to be relatively innocent of uh, American history in the last 50 or 60 or 70 years, if not longer, uh, to feel that way. I mean, I have very vivid memories uh, as a, a kid growing up in the 30s uh, of hearing Father Coughlin on the radio uh, uh, every week uh, denouncing Roosevelt and the Jews, and particularly the Jews. And, um, you know, Henry Ford publishing his newspaper, The Dearborn Gazette, with, with its vicious anti-Semitic slanders, and the Ku Klux Klan functioning in you know, virtually half the country. Um, and uh, in the small town of Massachusetts where I grew up, uh, which was a largely Republican town, and, and because in our household, FDR was you know, sort of God and the Savior rolled into one. Um, but many people uh, in the town referred to Roosevelt as Jewsvelt uh, because of Felix Frankfurter and, and various other people who uh, Roosevelt uh, brought to Washington. Um, you know, compared to that, I mean, anti-Clinton sentiment in this country is a honeymoon. I mean, it's child's play. It's the peaceable kingdom. Uh, and, uh, and, th and the fact is that American society as a whole, not only in politics, uh, but in, uh, in uh, morals, uh, uh, in their attitudes toward marriage and the family, they're maybe they're not only far more tolerant, they may be excessively tolerant of, of uh, uh, destructive impulses uh, that now uh, so easily win social approval. So I don't think they, I don't think there's a, a a persuasive argument to be made that there are these incre increasing levels of intolerance in, in our politics. Uh, I 
think there may be increasing levels of ignorance in our politics, but I don't think there are increasing levels of intolerance. This would be my cue to, to, to jump in, actually. I, I mean, on the whole, I agree with you. These acts of violence are significant more because of, uh, for two reasons. One, because they're aberrations, and two, because of the reaction that they prompt, which is how deeply tolerance as an idea has sunk into our culture. But I do think that there are, there are almost socially sanctioned kinds of intolerance uh, that we apply to people who we see as not fitting in, not keeping up. Uh, and I'm thinking here, uh, in particular, economically. Uh, the poor, the homeless, uh, criminals, petty and otherwise. Uh, I think one could argue, you know, particularly with laws like uh, three strikes and you're out, uh, that there's an increasing kind of impatience and intolerance on the part of an economically prosperous and increasingly prosperous society for those people who seem to be a threat to our economic wealth. Marie? Well, I think tolerance is an overrated virtue. <laughs> I think that, I think that, that the, the United States in some ways is founded on intolerance in the sense that the the Puritans, if you read Perry Miller or any of the great accounts of the New England mind, rather particularly live and let live bunch. These are people with quite, uh, quite fixed ideas about what the um, social relations should look like. And you know, what I mean by that is we were properly intolerant of anti-communism. We were properly intolerant of the way that the many Americans were properly intolerant of the, uh, the way the South was, was treating blacks properly intolerant about many great moral issues. Intolerance is in and of itself not a bad thing. I, I think that one thing that, uh, that, that one does notice that is the way in which this intolerance has, been, has begun to be expressed almost exclusively in legal terms. So that a, a kind of brute majoritarianism is afoot where whenever you find something you don't like, it has to be made illegal, whether it is smoking, or cracking dirty jokes at a water cooler. Uh, you know, all these things are sort of immediately by fiat turned, into, uh, turned illegal. The converse, of, co of course, of that means that you've created such a kind of explosion of regulations and laws that if you don't break a law, this is the test of your virtue. Um, so that we, I mean, part of what is amazing about this, the, the, the events of the last nine days, which we are at some point going to uh, get to, but part of what is extraordinary is, is the way in which the entire discussion revolves purely on the most legalistic issue, as if society has no ability to publicly censure, condemn, disapprove of what, in my view, is a rather obviously um, morally questionable act, regardless of whether or not the, the, you know, the, the person involved should be prosecuted, should resign, should be impeached, all of which are entirely different issues. But if you beat the rap now, it, it's, it's proof of your virtue. Well, now we've arrived. Yeah. <laughs>
really we're all working on, on largely on, on uh, second and third and, and fourth hand conjecture and, and uh, rehashing of, of rumors. So, um, so, put it, so, so let, us, uh, let, let us leave an open mind on what actually happened. I frankly um, don't really think that, it's, that, that it's, it's my business to know what actually happened. It's really, it's really between, between them and, their, and, and obviously their families. Um, I think the criminalization that Farid alluded to, the criminalization of, 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 of bad behavior or of clumsy sexual behavior uh, is a very dangerous road, but it does harken back to, uh, to Cotton Mather and to our, um, our founding uh, Puritans. And we seem to be going down that route. And to me, Kenneth Starr, with, uh, with his very little accountability and unlimited budget, um, is, is doing great, much greater harm than, uh, than good to, to our society. And um, I, I, I hope it's not too late for us to, to recover from this because uh, the fact is that, um, that, that it's, it's, it's more or less paralyzing um, our executive. Um, and and um, you know, how, however good a face he puts on it. And it's making us look extremely foolish in, in the eyes of the world. And I, 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 find it, like I find it extremely uh, the resemblance of Kenneth Starr to uh, to uh, uh, Mather, uh, very obscure, I have to say. <laughs> uh, and I think what you leave out of uh, your account is that we have a president who's lived by the media. I mean, why is there such a media frenzy? It's because Clinton created a media frenzy running for office. And, uh, and created a media frenzy to remain in office. I mean, he has resorted to the media, including talking about his marriage on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a politician who lives by the media can expect to die by the media. No politician can, can live without the media any longer. I mean, sadly. But and there are it's Clinton who's made it our business. I, I, I actually would agree with this. I think that when you say we don't, need to report on this kind of personal stuff that from press's perspective, this is a form of unilateral disarmament. That exactly. when you have a, po every politician is going to use his or her personal life uh, to help him or her get into office. Al Gore will talk about his sister's cancer, his son's car accident. I don't, uh, uh, maybe I'm cynical, I don't think it's a coincidence that Chelsea came <coughs> home from Stanford for a weekend at Camp David. It seems to me that when you have a politician who is willing to try to exploit the media to present a certain image, then the media has a, a, a fair right to sort of turn around and say, this image and the reality are not different. And in fact, I think that the media has been pretty soft on Clinton on, on this for years. I mean, this is one of those things, you know, elites in Washington have rumored about all the various women that Clinton has been known to have made a pass at, said to have slept with, and it's very sort of cozy and nice for them to talk about this amongst themselves, and yet think, well, this is something that the American public probably shouldn't know. You think that if there's a reporter in Washington who could, who could prove, using the, the old-fashioned journalistic standards of, of, let's say, two sources for every allegation, is there a reporter in Washington who could prove it who would who would have sat on that story? Absolutely. I don't think so. Absolutely. I think that it would be very hard to get that story published. And you'll notice that the only reason this story came out is because people could say that it was really about Ken Starr and perjury 
and not about sex. Proving sex is very difficult. It's like proving murder. If you're not there, it's very. If you're not under the bed, mm -hmm. how That's do you? Awesome comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I go too far. <laughs> but that, that, um, I thought I detected a a major difference of opinion between Farid and Kathy just now, and if there isn't, I'll manufacture one. Um, uh, Farid, I understood you to be saying that the there was a major moral issue here that, that, that people should take a stand on. Uh, and Kathy seemed to be saying that it's nobody's business. And, um, in and then, well, so. I, 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 I'm, I have a feeling that Kathy would agree with me, but I, you know, I'm certainly willing to invite her rap. Um, <laughs> which is to say, I'm, I'm really saying separate from the issue of whether or not he should be impeached or resign or tried in a court of law, is the simple issue of whether or not uh, we should express, you know, we sh there should be some sense of kind of shame in society about what people do. Um, and it's difficult, I realize, because standards have changed, etc. Let me give you a simple example. In 1960, you could not attend a garden party at Buckingham Palace if you were a, div a divorcee, if you were divorced. You know, now 75% of the occupants of Buckingham Palace are divorced. <laughs> um, I mean, the principal players. But, so, but no percent of the occupants of the White House, as I understand it. Well, Reagan was a divorcee. Had seen divorced. Right, exactly. No one who is divorced. No, yeah. no, um, and I think it's very, be very difficult to imagine a, you know, a, a divorced man or, or, or a divorced woman becoming. But I, I, I mean, really, just this, this, in, in the issue of why we have lost the ability to be intolerant without, without outlawing something, which it seems to me would solve some of these terrible dilemmas we face, because as, as Rich was saying, they have to then be expressed in legal terms so that perjury becomes the big issue which seems to me, frankly, almost irrelevant in, in, at some level, which is to say, you know, people lie about adultery all the time. The issue is, it's, it's almost a moral issue of social disapproval. Uh, if you ask somebody a point blank if they've committed adultery, if they have, I, I don't know, I'm guessing, that nine out of 10 do lie. <laughs> For me, I, I would agree with you with one caveat, which is that there is, a, a, the law is a democratizing factor and that if you have somebody like Paula Jones, who, uh, let's assume that this didn't happen, could never have attained any kind of recourse, assuming that she deserved it, through any other means. Um, and the fact that, that she is able to sue the president, for better or worse, is it, it, a great democratizing factor. That it's also, I think, sense. important to remember the Paula Jones case, that she's, uh, let's say, has had a bad press. Uh, is that she didn't initiate her suit until one of uh, Bill Clinton's former uh, troopers uh, mentioned that he had had an affair with a girl named Paula and said that he had brought her to his hotel room. And that was what, about a year and a half to two years after the event. It was when the troopers remark about a girl named Paula surfaced in the media that the lawsuit was brought. And um, that's been totally lost sight of, I think, in, uh, in the coverage, where she has now been made you know, into this you know, sort of right-wing uh, monster and so on. Hilton, um, on the point that, that Fareed raised about Clinton's behavior, do you agree that one that should take a moral stand on this, and what should it be? Well, or I think. Stand. Well, 
society finds itself incapable of making moral judgments, that itself makes it almost inevitable that there will be this great recourse to legalistic judgments because society is hungry for judgments. And if they can't be made on moral grounds, which in our society they pretty much can't any longer, then they're going to be made on legal grounds, uh, which I think puts society in a terrible position. So as I agree with Farid entirely. So this is a metaphorical legal actions and metaphors. Yeah, the, le the, 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 the legal strategies are all brought into play uh, in a society which finds itself paralyzed about making moral distinctions. If, if society is hungry for some sort of a, a judgment on, on presidential bad behavior, then how do you explain the fact that after nine days of absolute saturation coverage, uh, Clinton's approval ratings are going through the roof um, while at the same time, um, the, uh, the American people seem to be saying, yes, we are aware uh, of, his, uh, of his problematic behavior. I, I see this as, as very much a, a rebuke of, uh, of the media's coverage. Um, and, and you don't think poll taking is part of the media coverage? <laughs> what is a poll anyway? It's, a, it's, a form of, it's an institution of the media. But, the, but, uh, and, and fake, but these numbers no, are very... No, but, but, but like most of what appears in the media, polls are fiction. Wow. You know, it's a snapshot at one particular... Why is it in the, why is it in the media's interest to, to, uh, to publish figures which show that the American people are completely at, at odds with Because it's with a way of the keeping media. the story alive. Ah, so we have a conspiracy theory. No, it's not a conspiracy, it's just business. with you know real actual people and the sentiment with the real actual people seems to bear out what the polls are saying that there is this kind of backlash and uh, I'm a little mystified by it I, you know maybe it has to do with the fact that people dislike the media more than they dislike you know the president being serviced by it an intern and what they what they polled did not ask the people uh, who responded favorably is whether it, they had stopped reading or uh, listening to uh, television programs about the president's sex life. Oh no, sex sells, it's entertainment. I, I think that people now consider much of the news as so entertainment. They're, so they're pumping down their money for yeah. these salacious magazines. But they're saying the guy's doing an okay job, so let him finish his term. But is, I, that, I think, is that your point of view, Conti? That he's doing, he's, he's definitely doing a good job. The country is, is prospering. Um, I think he, the, the second term seems to have, uh, he has an ease about uh, the office that, uh, that took him a while to, uh, and, and, and by the way, if, and, and by the way, impeachment is a, is a very messy and, and long drawn out process and, and the country does not seem to be in the mood for that. I think that actually is it. I mean, like Rich, I think honestly, I'm, I'm mystified by it, I think, as everybody is at some level. But it must be some sense of, you know, my, the public recoiling and saying, my God, this would be very serious, messy 
Uh, you know, you almost don't want to know this, and since it is in some sense a petty issue, not a, not a high constitutional crime, there's a sense of, oh my God, if we go down this path and you, the media, tell us it's going to lead to impeachment, well, that's, that's, a very, uh, that's not a situation we want to be in. We're sort of in a happy times of peace and prosperity. We'd rather you know, go to the movies. Isn't, isn't <laughs> <laughs> which is which is perfectly rational. I don't even mean it in a confederate way. Is we can't be entertained by uh, films about adultery. <laughs> <laughs> is, but isn't isn't the count against Clinton uh, neither the moral one that he's done something that is sinful according to the religion that he himself <coughs> professes and most of the country is supposed to profess, nor uh, that uh, he was um, uh, that he is. Uh, simply stupid, but that he showed incredibly bad judgment. I mean, this, what, what's Gary Hart thinking at the moment? <laughs> the, the count against Gary Hart was partly uh, based on morals, but it was also, how can the man show such terrible judgment if he's meant to be a presidential candidate? Isn't this an issue of judgment? And how does one hold a president accountable short of impeachment to that kind of charge? I, I don't think it's an issue of judgment, actually. I think people sort of think it's that's more the media's fault for sort of rooting it out or Ken Starr's fault. What I, what I do think is is that, um, you know, this is an opportunity for real debate, not just a trivial debate about the role of morality in our politics and what we expect from our president, how tolerant we are going to be of, of this sort of bad behavior in a time when everybody or most people seem to be making money. Is this all that we want? Is the president sort of a CEO whose sole responsibility is to produce the greatest return to his shareholders? Or is the public, uh, does the public have a right to expect the president be a, a moral leader, uh, a role model, even a hero, of whom they should be intolerant if, if he repeatedly falls from grace? The odd thing is that my, my brother, who is an investment banker, points out that if any CEO were ever uh, out of court doing something remotely like this, he would be fired yeah. the next day. <laughs> but see, I actually I, I disagree with that. I think if, if Bill Gates were uh, were doing this, He's um, the owner. he owns the. Uh, the I think Clinton is not yet in that happy position. Uh, <laughs> you, you said, yeah. CEO, right? If you if you if Bill Gates were going to be asked over this and. and I think the, the negative value of Microsoft was going to drop by 40% overnight, you would not have anyone who would throw him out. But don't you think that if he these, Farid and Richard, don't you think that if these revelations about, about Clinton's conduct had come out during the campaign, I mean, we did have that one bimbo eruption and, and, and they dealt with it quite brilliantly. But if these things would have come out when, when we were in a position to vote yay or nay, it might have had quite a different result. Because I think there is this feeling that the that the president is 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 the, the steward of the nation, uh, that that it is it, that that leadership does require a modicum of of moral leadership. But the fact is, it's what we've been saying that 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 the impeachment process is so dramatic and traumatic for for the nation that uh, that nobody's in the mood for that, and I think that's why country is, is saying, can we please now, can we please now just get on with it? And, and I, I have, I, I don't know, it's possible that, it's, it's, it's possible that people are, are, are still um, tuning into every salacious detail, but, but my uh, perception of it is that, in fact, the media are cutting back now, too. I, 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 think, I think what people often forget, 
particularly abroad, you know, just a sort of European sophisticated um, you know, view, the letter from Paris uh, explaining you know, what wars we all are here, um, is that the, the president is not just the head of government, but the head of state. And he, he combines that kind of ceremonial and uh, sense of giving expression to the nation. His wife is the first lady of the, you know, there's a, there's a certain uh, degree of, 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 um, uh, of being a, a national figurehead, which makes it more amenable to this kind of uh, analysis. Well, uh, before I do turn this over to the audience, you, you brought up this question of the head of state and the first lady. And I know that Carty's writing a book about presidents and first ladies. What degree of tolerance or intolerance is Hillary displayed in the present uh, situation? Well, I, I think she's been remarkable. I mean, she has been the, uh, the captain of his rehabilitation. Um, I, you know, she's, the, the way she's, um, she's kind of uh, mobilized, galvanized the, the forces and, and, and went out there. I, we have no way of knowing, of course, what she's thinking or feeling um, uh, in, in in the privacy of, of uh, their their uh, boudoir, I can I can only guess, but but her her <laughs> but but her composure and her and her um, strength in, in in fighting back has has been unparalleled in, in I would say in, in history. For this is this is a wife who who has been wrong now, not once or twice, but many times over. It's a remarkable thing. I, I, I would be very interested in, in, in how the rest of you um, have, have responded to, to Hillary's take charge attitude toward her husband's bad behavior. Well, it has been said that power corrupts. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who said that. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's time to invite members of the audience to ask questions or make comments if they prefer. Uh, the consensus on the platform seems to be that uh, we live in an age of remarkable tolerance, and uh, most of us have exhibited a high degree of it in the course of this debate. Voices were raised only once, as I recall. So uh, it may be that you have different opinions or you'd like to provoke us. And uh, please, if you wish, address your comments to a single speaker, if you wish. Uh, or uh, we can pick someone out. Uh, I see one question hand here, then there, and over here, and there. I see four to start with. Yes, please. It might help if you stood up, we could hear you better. I find it amazing that two years ago, the government of this country was closed down for, what was it, nine days? In a display of intolerance against poor people, against minorities, and I believe it was Fareed, I'm not sure. There's only one comment about this intolerant activity of the parts of the majority against the poor and the minorities. Are we so well off now that we completely forget about this just two years ago? It was actually Rich who said it. So <laughs> well, Richard was in uh, sympathy with that question. I, I, I am, you know, in, in, in sympathy with this. I, I think that the intention of shutting down the government was not to harm these people, although I'm sure it had that effect. Uh, 
I, I think it's a fair point. You know that that. I, I think. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, can you? Yeah, actually, could somebody? <laughs> the question had to do with whether or not the government had not been intolerant in, in, in shutting itself down a couple of years back. Uh, with the subsequent effect of, of hurting the poor people. You're shaking your head. Feel free to stand up. No, I had Congress, the intolerance of Congress, that which effectively forced the government to shut down. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure what the question is. What, what? A comment. I mean, how can we have a discussion of intolerance when two years ago the actions of Congress were so intolerant of people in this country that Bill Clinton felt that his only response was to shut the country down. Two I, years ago this happened. This, uh, my, and my answer is that I would agree with you uh, on that question of intolerance, that there is, I, I think, uh, perhaps the last forms of socially sanctioned intolerance have to do with those who seem to be obstructionist and not keeping out. I would only disagree with you in saying, well, that may have been the consequence of the government shutdown. It was not the intention. Anyone else want to comment on that? Uh, just behind the first questioner, there was a hand up. Yes, it's not too easy for me to see against the lines. Of, uh, of enough solid I, 
this is a chicken or egg thing, but I, I think that, that had the American people been, been fully informed um, and had our leaders uh, behaved more responsibly uh, and led rather than followed, uh, we would have uh, we would have probably gotten involved uh, much sooner. And uh, but when we did get involved, we did so with with with, uh, with great energy and, and both diplomatically and and with force. And uh, as a result, there is peace now in Bosnia. And I think we have proven that that uh, we have a very definite role to continue to play uh, in Europe, whether we like it or not, an essential role. Fareed. Uh, well, but to your question, I can't see that, that uh, the public response or lack of response to the Clinton scandals uh, uh, has any direct relation to uh, the public feeling about Bosnia. I think American public opinion was uh, uh, shocked by in Bosnia, uh, and rather numbed by the lack of response uh, by the, from the government, uh, because it was certainly a war that was documented on television every night. And uh, when that happens, and the government seems in a state of paralysis over it, then the public is in a state of paralysis over it. But I can't see that that carries over into responses to sex scandals or fundraising scandals. I, 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 I think that's quite a leap myself. <coughs> well, uh, what it does uh, raise the question of, we've been talking about intolerance and tolerance, but um, uh, perhaps I'd ask the panel, when does tolerance become complacency? About now. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 we were talking about Gary Hart before. I think uh, I, I, I sort of sometimes wonder what what Bob Dole is thinking to himself now, who for a while tried to uh, campaign on this theme, where is the outrage? And this was uh, near the end of the campaign when, when Dole was actually sort of saying what he really felt, and you could see his frustrations coming out. The sense that when you're running in a, in a, in a boom economic time, uh, nothing else seems to have any traction with the public. Yes, please, and then over here. Just speak up, please. Sometimes their eyes. No, my ears, my ears are wide open. Yes. I well, I, I, can repeat, I can repeat the question for you, Hilton. It was a two-part question. One was, is the declining, the evidently declining support for a woman's right to choose evidence of increasing intolerance? And is also 
the lack of public or lack of political support for welfare uh, also evidence of an increase in intolerance. So it was two part questions. There was a sort of third one, which I, which I. No, the third was a comment. Oh, I see. Which provoked the applause. You didn't hear that either. <laughs> no, I heard. I heard. No, no. I, I was actually just going to respond to that, which was the, the, the third, in case anyone didn't hear, was that, that we focused um, too much on personalities and, and things like that, and not enough on public policy. And the only point I would make is the the discussion of it. I, I think if you want to use words loosely and use intolerance to mean every bad thing, you know, that you have every particular public policy you don't like, it makes the discussion meaningless. Um, I think the, the attempt here was to have a kind of discussion about a sense of intolerance in general cultural terms, um, not, you know, I mean, we could all list the, the five programs we dislike that the government is pursuing and call them intolerant because they have, they have a negative effect on some group of people which every government program has, I, I think that renders the, the term meaningless. I think actually the, in the abortion issue, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of case study. You know, one can say that disagreeing with abortion and trying to chisel away at abortion rights is intolerant, but I think that Farid is right, that devalues the word tolerance. What is intolerant is blowing up an, an abortion clinic. Would you like to comment on the other issue of welfare, which is certainly something that has not come up? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you can also frame that as a question of tolerance or intolerance. I think the, the debate then becomes if, it, if you decide that it's intolerance, is it justified or not? We were talking earlier about Carla Faye Tucker um, and saying that in a sort of at, at the extreme level that this is, her execution is a sign of society's intolerance uh, of this kind of violent crime. Uh, you could, you know, the sort of corollary argument to that as well is that sort of intolerance appropriate. Well, you could also say that uh, Tucker's uh, execution was the, you know, uh, most extreme victory for the feminist movement. I mean, what could, what greater equality of the sexes could there be? <laughs> Kathy, do you want to contribute to this particular debate? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, but I, I agree with uh, with my colleagues here. You don't have to be sorry. Very, <laughs> said it very well that mm -hmm. that you know one man's tolerance is uh, mm -hmm. is another man's intolerance, and, and we did try to keep our our personal uh, issues uh, out of the discussion, and and uh, hopefully uh, touch on, on on some themes and, and issues that that we think affect all of us. If, if I could even just give a few examples, I mean, large parts of the country. People who are uh, very religious feel the rest of the country is intolerant toward them, feels that there are laws that express this intolerance by not allowing their children to pray in schools, etc., uh, etc. Et and I'm sure most of the people here don't agree with it. But again, to, to, it seems to me to frame this in, you know, in, in, in terms of tolerance and intolerance, you lose the, 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 the general discussion. If, if I can make one point about tolerance and intolerance, you know, your opinion about the execution of Carla Bay Tucker may seem unpopular to some people, but kissing is intolerant. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think what, it, what was the last thing you said? Well, I don't know if you heard that, but you were hissed at. Oh, yes, I did hear that. He's hissed at. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's but it's, so, it's such a familiar sound. Quite <laughs> 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 I had a question here and here and then there. Yeah. 
Yes, please. Wonderful aspects to it, and uh, and 
I would put CNN definitely in that in that category, and uh, and, I, and and the same about uh, I, I would say the same about um, about the the internet and websites and so on. Their 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 role in in knitting together the global village uh, is enormous. But we managed to win the war against the Axis powers without television. And uh, with television, we were paralyzed into inactivity in Bosnia. I don't agree. Well, yeah. eventually, so the, eventually. Vietnam was the, yeah. the prime example of the television. And, and by the way, we, we beat the Axis, but, but, uh, but at what cost? And, and you know, the question is often raised, had we had cameras, had we had uh, uh, evening news broadcasts, um, from, from the neighborhood around Auschwitz, would we have waited as long as we did uh, to, uh, to roll back the Nazis? I, 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 do, I wanted to try to answer the, the, the question more specifically, which I thought was very intelligent, which is what would be the political and cultural effects of this? And I think, honestly, I don't know, but what I am struck by is the kind of noisy vacillations in American politics you see nowadays, so that in 1994, Clinton was the most evil man in the world. The Republicans were the savior. We had this massive um, realignment. One year later, the Republicans were the evilest force you could ever imagine. They were you know, nasty, horrible, brutal people for, for doing what they campaigned they would do when they were the most popular political party. And, you know, and now we may be back, who knows, to Clinton being, being uh, you know, uh, uh, thoroughly uh, lacking in, in moral virtue. And there may be this kind of, uh, extreme seesaw that we have to get used to, which does mirror in a way the TV's ability to, to sort of instantly amplify public passions, uh, which is in some ways in contrast to, uh, to old print journalism's ability to, in a way, temper public passions. Uh, I have a question here. Excuse me, I can't see on my shoulders. Actually, I, I have to say that uh, I don't think you were, 
I understand the, the question's reaction. I, I thought whenever people talk of birth rates and one group of people versus another and alarm in the same sense, I think it's easy to, to misunderstand. I don't think that the question was being intolerant. I'll back you up on the hisses. This, this, uh, also, I mean, this is the kind of um, the kind of language and the kind of discussion that's being used by someone like Le Pen in France, where it's and in, in, in Europe generally there is, uh, although that's not our topic. I think it's reasonable to say that there's a rise in intolerance of minorities, um, whatever the religion and ethnic origin. Uh, but it also seems to me it raises that question. There is often, I think, what the questioner has in mind too, there's often this assumption, certainly in the country that I came from, Britain, and here too, that you can't be a Muslim and a good Englishman or a good Frenchman or a good American. And that seems to me simply isn't true. The assumption is that a Muslim must be a friend of the Ayatollah Khomeini, or at least well, there was, uh, there was no suggestion of that in what I said. However, there is a difference, a fundamental difference between Europe and the United States, and that is, and that's why so many Europeans come here, and that is that they, the Europeans see the United States as a much more, as a country that's much more tolerant of minorities because so nationalist traditions in Europe have militated against according uh, uh, minority populations uh, justice. And that's one of the fundamentals of what you might call the old world order. That's why we're a nation uh, based on immigration, whereas most European, uh, Western European nations are not. Yeah. I think that uh, I think it, the question raises a, a very legitimate issue, which is because Europe does not have these traditions of assimilation, um, it does pose a, a kind of problem. I don't mean that in a threatening sense, which is to say, how do Muslims, for their part, figure out how, how to be good Frenchmen? What does it what does it require? For I mean, in America, you could you can be in a good American, but it does require of a Muslim, as it did of Germans, that they, you denude yourself of your original culture to some substantial degree. Um, now, in Europe, it seems to me that there is a problem because you don't get the benefits of assimilation, and so people resent the costs. And so there is a kind of an uneasy um, problem. On the birth rate, though, I would say that high birth rates are mathematically correlated with, with, uh, with, with low income. So if the French want to do something about this, let alone the Vatican, the simplest solution would be to transfer some of those generous uh, agricultural subsidies that they give to farmers with uh, one child to the, to the Muslims outside Paris, and they'll magically find that they have fewer children. <laughs> I, I thought I saw a hand up here, and then I think I have to. I think we have to. No? <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. Please ask your question. And, and in uh, 
corporate consolidations. And actually, I don't think I was the one who said that the power elites are disappearing. I think I said that they're doing just fine. And I think it was, <laughs> I was it, talking it, about a foreign policy elite specifically. And I think also Farid was lamenting their apparent uh, fading from the, from the national scene. And so I threw that one down. No one here said that the rich are disappearing. <laughs> or that they aren't getting richer. But that's a different issue. Uh, because none of these people with their mergers are displaying in, in, in the kind of leadership or responsibility in foreign policy issues that Farid and I would have talked about. I, I think actually your, your example uh, highlights again what I'm saying, which is there is, there is an elite, whether you like it or not. Uh, I remember uh, Alan Bloom, um, um, you know, who wrote The Closing of the American Mind, came to Harvard to defend himself against charges of rank elitism, because the book was you know, regarded, of course, as being this pay into elitism. And he began his speech in, in, in the manner of FDR's address to the Daughters of the American Revolution. He began it by saying, my fellow elitists. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he spent the first five minutes explaining to them that if they were at Harvard, then it was, you know, it was, it was without question true that they were going to be an elite. And the question was really, were they self-conscious about it? And would they, would they take on some of the responsibilities and not just enjoy the, uh, the power that comes with it? But I, I think it's simplistic to say that these elites are, are not playing some similar roles. I, I mean, Ted Turner, George Soros, these are extremely rich men. They may not be an intellectual elite, depending on how you no. feel about them. But, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly there are financial elite who, who seem to be inching towards involvement in foreign affairs. And, and we talked about Bill Gates before. Bill Gates bankrolled a, a ballot measure in Washington State for, I think it was for, uh, locks on handguns, uh, which he was the, he gave something like half a million dollars for. So maybe it's not quite the same group, and maybe their visibility is not uh, yet as high because their their wealth is more recent and their confidence level is uh, is not as high. But I, I think it's happening, and I think you'll see more. I think George Soros lacks any confidence level myself. No, I think actually what you do see is uh, you know the five, ten, fifteen. High, very public cases of this, but the data is overwhelming that there has been a decline in membership in almost all public interest organizations from the Rotary Club downwards and Robert Putnam at Harvard has this massive study showing that in organization after organization, which were you know these classic Tocquevillian intermediate public interest organizations, membership has been, has been spiraling downwards for the last 25 years. And so I, I'm, not dis, I'm not disagreeing that there are individuals, all, all the people you mentioned, I applaud uh, heartily for what they're doing. But I think what I'm talking about more is sort of the, 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 the senior partner in the law firm in the, in the mid-level town in Ohio, who would in, you know, in a generation ago have, have taken on some public responsibilities to raise money for the local hospital or things like that. You see much less of that. Yes.
Uh, Bob, that, I think everyone heard that question, did they not? That was sufficiently loud. Uh, Kati, do you? Uh... Well, uh, we of course live in the most uh, multicultural place on the planet, uh, so perhaps uh, perhaps this isn't a fair uh, judgment. But but uh, I think uh, I would say yes, we are getting uh, more tolerant. I, I I came here not speaking. Uh, more than six words of English when I was uh, 10 years old, a refugee from communism. And uh, so I had two hits against me. I, I had no history, no, no uh, parents or, or no family in this country. And plus, uh, I was a girl. Uh, and uh, I must say, I, I, I haven't found um, uh, too many barriers uh, in my path. And, and, and as, I, as, I, as I look around, uh, in, in almost every uh, social situation uh, or professional situation that, that, that I encounter, uh, it's, getting, it's getting more diverse rather than, rather than less. I mean, there have been many waves of refugees since, since uh, I came here in, um, in the late 50s. Uh, so I think, I think that continues to be um, the, the edge that we have over any other country in the world is that, is that there is this constant infusion um, of, of new blood, and, and we have a way of um, we have we have a, we have a way of of, uh, of of drawing people in without making them uh, park their um, their cultural identity at the door. I never felt that I had to uh, give up my Hungarian roots. Uh, quite the contrary, I've, I've, I found that that it, it strengthened uh, my identity as an American. The fact that that I was a refugee. So I, I think this is a I mean, this sounds very Pollyannish, but I think this is still a remarkable uh, country in, in terms of its generosity toward, toward outsiders. And, and uh, there is no other place uh, like it. Kathy, you've dealt with the, with the ethnic, the issue of ethnic diversity. Uh, Richard, could I ask you to address one of the, other, of the other questions, which was, are we more or less tolerant of people who are other, either in their uh, sexual orientation, or in the case of women, uh, this has come up twice, I think at least.